I'm going to read a passage of scripture from Luke chapter 24. Just have you stand with me as we read it, then we'll pray before our message. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down, bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. God, we thank you for the privilege it is to know you through your word, and especially, God, knowing that you are risen, that you are alive, that you give us hope because you have overcome all of the things that face us, sin and death. Our prayer is today as we consider the sacrifice of Christ, Lord, that you would renew in us a hope, a hope of forgiveness of sins and righteousness that only comes through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think uh, most of us want to be compassionate. I'm not terribly compassionate. I just need to be honest with you. I mean, I'd like to be. I think you would too. I think, I think all of us would say, you know, I think I want to be more compassionate. But I think there's something about compassion that's sort of universally true, is we tend to have compassion on people, it's, or we should say it's maybe a little easier to have compassion on people when we can sort of relate to what their deal is. You know, we, can, we sort of connect in some way with what they're going through or what their, their life is like. I knew a, a, a couple years ago, what they would do is every summer is they would sponsor uh, kids to go to summer camp, Christian summer camp. And I asked uh, the gentleman one day, when, one day we were talking about, I said, this seems really important to you. What is it about Christian summer camp that motivates you to want to sponsor kids to go to Christian summer camp? And of course, you know exactly what it is, is, is he had had a, a life-altering experience with God at summer camp when he was a youth. And so what the result was, he had compassion on kids who couldn't do that. And he said, well, I want to make sure Kids who are in the same situation I was in have the opportunity to go to summer camp and maybe they also will have an experience of renewal in God. And so he had, he had compassion because he could sort of relate. You might also be this. Maybe you're a parent and your kids have grown. And then you see another set of parents who have young kids. And I'm not saying young kids are hard. I'll let you say that. Because I don't want to get in trouble again. Or more. Still. 
And so you might say to yourself, especially if they're in your family, you say, you know, I know what it's like having little kids in the house. And, and you remember what it was like having little kids in the house. And so you go up to them and say, you know what? If you and your husband ever wanted to get away, just for a night or just to go out to dinner, give me a call. I would be happy uh, to uh, watch the kids for the night so you can get away and just get a bit of a rest. And why would you do that? Because you sort of remember back, right? Oh, I remember what it was like, sleepless nights, uh, kids bickering and fighting, all the, all the normal stuff. And so there's that sort of thing. One last example that some of you might connect with is uh, many of us, over the course of our life, we've gone through real difficult struggles. And so you might imagine somebody who is recovering from maybe an addiction to alcohol or drugs. And, and they've seen that recovery effort be very, very uh, powerful in their lives. And a lot of times that individual will be moved to provide help and support and accountability to others who are going through a similar kind of struggle. Uh, act as a sponsor or, or help people get to the place where they're ready to respond favorably to recovery and treatment. It's because that person has a, a point of connection. And so that compassion flows out. Now, this is harder. That compassion is more difficult when we can't relate to what the other person is going through. When we see them, uh, and, and, and we say, well, what has gotten you into this spot? How do you know when that compassion doesn't show up? It's when you say a phrase like this. And I heard this a lot as a, a young person. You've gotten yourself into this mess. <laughs> now you're going to have to get yourself out. And so we have this attitude towards people in our lives. We look at them and we don't have compassion. We can't figure out why they're morons. <laughs> and I say that, uh, you know, to hopefully... You know, disarm you a little bit. Don't you do that? You see people maybe in the community. You know what? You need to get up off the ground, get yourself a job. And maybe, and maybe you don't need to see that in community. You'll see that at Easter dinner table. You know what you need to do? Now, don't say that. Easter dinner is going to be a train wreck. Just keep it to yourself. That's a free bit of advice. Think it, don't say it. So that's where that compassion is. Think about Jesus. Think about Jesus and his compassion. What kind of compassion does he have? He has to only have compassion on people who are doing things he's never done. Problems he's never had. Because he doesn't look at us and say, oh, I know what that... He knows what it's like to be tempted. He doesn't know what it's like to sin. The only kind of compassion Jesus can offer is to people who have gotten themselves into a predicament he has never gotten himself into. That's the kind of compassion he shows, is the kind that is most difficult for us to show. And so I just want to take a few minutes to look at the last moments of Christ before he goes to the cross and think specifically about his compassion and how it shows up in these final hours before the cross that we might understand a little bit better what he's like and what his sacrifice was like. Verse 13 of Luke 23, you can open your scripture if you want and follow along. I'll read most of it, uh, the text will have. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chairs around you if you want to grab one. It's up to you. Listen to what says Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 17. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man. Of course, he's referring to Jesus. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, 
for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Now, we get upset when the courts get things wrong. It bothers us when we find out there are innocent people serving prison sentences that they don't deserve because they got falsely accused. In fact, nowadays, some of the most popular podcasts are podcasts where people look at injustices in the criminal justice system when they examine how criminal investigations have gone terribly wrong and a person who appears to have been likely wrongly convicted has spent time in jail and we listen to these podcasts and we become incensed, don't we? Like how could this person end up in jail? How could this kind of an investigation occur in a modern country like ours? Jesus set aside what was owed to him as an innocent man. Jesus set aside what was owed to him as an innocent man, and he did so on purpose so he could stand in for those who aren't innocent. So Jesus sets aside his rights. He disregarded the rights of innocence out of compassion for those who aren't innocent. In fact, he intentionally set aside his rights as an innocent man in order to experience injustice. So that those who aren't innocent wouldn't have to face the justice they deserved. Here in Luke chapter 23 verses 13 through 16 that I just read. You have the criminal record of Jesus from the Roman government. What's the criminal record of Jesus as stated by the Roman government? Innocent of all charges. Thoroughly examined by Pilate. Thoroughly examined by Herod. And Pilate makes the official statement regarding the court proceedings, which is what? Innocent. Completely exonerated by the public figures. Jesus, though, has never been trapped. Jesus, though, has never found himself in a pickle he can't get himself out of. Jesus is in this spot on purpose. He has chosen to be in this place of injustice on purpose. He's not trying to figure out how he can get a better lawyer. He's not trying to figure out how to make the right political moves. He's precisely where he means to be. He's choosing to be in the position of receiving unfairness. Why is he choosing to be in the position of receiving unfairness and injustice? Because of his compassion. Because his heart goes out to those who ought to be receiving the justice he's receiving. And instead, what he's saying is, I will be here instead. He has compassion for those who have had their relationship with God ruined because of their own foolishness. Jesus has compassion on those of us who have ruined our relationship with God because of our own foolishness. His heart breaks for us. And how was he treated as a result of his willingness to step into this position of unfairness and injustice to show compassion to those of us who have foolishly disregarded God and broken that relationship? How, how do people respond to him? We'll see in just a minute. They do some things like shouting at him, sneering at him, mocking him. Herod put a, a fancy robe on him and, and made fun of him and said, oh, here's your king of the Jews. Pilate's soldiers beat him and blindfolded him and would smack him around and would ingest, tell him, look, somebody's going to smack you and, and you tell us who it was. Was it Bill? Was it Eddie? Was it Tom? Sorry, Bill, Eddie, and Tom. That's, <laughs> that's my bad on that one. 
What does Jesus never do in all of these situations? He never defends himself. He never intervenes to stop it. He never calls down legions of angels to bring judgment on them. He never miraculously knocks them over to cast them aside so that they can't touch him. Instead, he on purpose, in the moment, chooses to experience injustice, even though he is completely innocent. And he does those as an act of compassion for those who aren't innocent. Luke chapter 23, verse 28. I'm going to read a few verses. Luke 23, 28. I think I'll read. Yeah, I'm going to read till I feel like stopping. <laughs> Jesus, on his way to the skull, the place of the skull, where his cross will be set up and with him on it, Jesus turns to some women who are mourning. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So here's Jesus suffering unfairly for the sins of others, not his own sin, he had none. Here is Jesus being paraded as a fool, to the place of the skull where he will be crucified, hung on a Roman cross to die nice and slow. And on the way there, having already been flogged and having been beaten and having been kept up all night and no sleep and really no food and experiencing the humiliation of all of these things that are occurring, on his way he sees some women who are, are crying. Now if you're like me, when you are suffering, there's one person that matters in all of the world, me. And what would be great when things are bad is if everybody else on planet Earth would recognize how bad it is. Now, what we call this nowadays in the modern parlance, it is the man flu. Have you heard of this? That's what it is, is when I get sick, it's not a big deal. I just need the entire world to stop and recognize. That's what, that's what needs to occur. And maybe you do this to varying degrees, but we all do this when we're suffering. All that matters is the suffering, and we want it to end. And here's Jesus enduring suffering unparalleled on planet Earth throughout all of history. And as he's going along, he sees these women mourning. And what's interesting about the compassion of Jesus in this moment, his heart goes out to these women. And he recognizes that they are also going to endure suffering because the plan of redemption for God is not like we would have expected. Jesus is going to die on the cross and raise from the dead. And the Bible tells us God is eager that as many people as possible might reach out to Jesus through faith to receive forgiveness of sins that he has determined that even though he could come in the, in the immediacy of the moment and set up his kingdom, he's decided, I'm going to wait a while so that as many people as possible might have the opportunity to express faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, we're going to let things go on for a while. And knowing this, Jesus looks at these women, knowing the difficulty they're going to face in the near future, 40 years from this moment, Emperor Titus is going to invade Jerusalem and destroy it. And Jesus' heart breaks for these women and the suffering he knows that they're going to endure. So this is Jesus' compassion. Jesus looks at what sin does to the world. Here's what sin does to the world. It ruins it. It makes it inhabitable. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth being reminded of. The mortality rate of planet Earth is 
Everybody is dying. And Jesus recognizes sin's uh, destruction on, on the human condition, and his heart breaks for us. He's like, man, it's, it's so hard to live in a world ruined by sin. And his heart, even though he is going through so much suffering in this moment, his heart goes out to these women who are mourning for him. His heart breaks for the sinner, even as he carries the burden of his sin to the place of the skull. That's what the compassion of Jesus is like. He's undoing sin, while at the same time mourning the experience of the sinner. Let's look at a couple more verses. Verses 35 through 38 of Luke 23. I'm going to read them. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Now normally on a Roman cross, they would hang the charges of the one being crucified over his head. So the charge that Jesus has leveled against him is a mockery. Not only is it a charge, but it's a mockery. The Romans hang this over his head uh, in several languages we read in the other gospel. This is the king of the Jews, and it's a mockery. Number one, it's a mockery of Jesus, that he would be claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they're mocking Jesus. Here's what we can do to a guy who claims to be a king. They're also mocking the Jews, telling the Jews, look, this is what we can do to your king. Appoint as many kings as you want. We have a surplus of crosses. So the Romans are mocking both the Jews and they're mocking Jesus. And the only charge that they can bring against Jesus, because remember, Pilate has declared him completely innocent. The only charge is that he is the king of the Jews. And so here on the cross, everybody is mocking him as a liar. Because if he is king as he is claimed to be, what should he be able to do? Come off that cross. That's what he should be able to do. He's a liar because he's hanging on this cross. Because any true king of the Jews would never find himself on a cross. And any true king of the Jews who did find himself on a cross would certainly exit the cross by his own power and the power of God. But this king is different. This king loves the mockers too much to come off that cross. Because what does a mocker need? Forgiveness. Righteousness that only Christ can offer. And what is the only means by which righteousness can be granted to a sinner? If the one who is righteous is willing to take on himself the penalty for that sinner. So the worst thing Jesus could do as a compassionate king is come off of that cross. Because if he comes off that cross, those mockers have no hope. But if Jesus endures the cross as he means to endure... All those who have ruined their relationship with God by their own foolishness now have an opportunity to put their hope in the one who has bore their injustice. In fact, we discover this about Jesus' compassion. He can handle false accusations. How do we handle false accusations? You take that okay? Uh, I don't. I'm just being, maybe I'm the only one who doesn't like being told something untrue about them. I usually get really annoyed. Might call it frustrated. I'm sure you take it perfectly well. I would suggest that we would take it even worse if undergoing what Jesus was undergoing. 
I can think of some really good one-liners I might have said if I was in that position. And what did Jesus do? He took it. Because he's the king of righteousness. And he didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he chose to. And why would this king choose that? Because he has compassion on foolish people like us who ruined our relationship with God on purpose. And his heart breaks for us. One of the criminals, because as you know, there were two criminals uh, crucified with him. One of the criminals who were hanged on a cross next to him railed at Jesus, saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. How convenient for you. You want Jesus to save himself from the cross because you find yourself in a similar predicament. We are like this criminal. We want Jesus, and we want Jesus, Jesus to be useful. And when exactly do we want Jesus to be useful? Right now. I need a Jesus who is useful. I need Jesus who is useful according to my assessment. And a Jesus who meets my expectations. And I need Jesus to show up according to my expectations right now. That's all the criminal wanted. That's all any of us want. But we have a king who is compassionate. Jesus loves us too much to interrupt our redemption and merely give us what we want. He loves us too much. His compassion is too great to merely give us what, uh, what we want. Instead, he provides us precisely what we need, which is his righteousness, his forgiveness, and eternal life when we trust him. The compassion of Jesus. He disregarded his rights as an innocent man, endured mocking, endured physical mistreatment, endured being uh, lied about, in order to show compassion to people who have foolishly ruined their relationship with God on purpose, that that relationship might be restored if we trust Jesus. Jesus is compassionate enough to endure it even though he was innocent. A couple of other things I wanted to point out the compassion, about the compassion of Jesus is, is this. Is Jesus was treated like a criminal on behalf of criminals. See, Jesus turns everything upside down. He does everything backwards. He does things different than when, what we would do. Jesus is receptive to those who don't deserve him being receptive. And he offers gentleness and hope to those who have ruined everything. To the self-righteous, they stand condemned. This is Jesus' compassion. He does everything backwards to how we would do it. He looks at those who are undeserving, those who have no hope, those who have ruined their own life and ruined everything in their life. And he says, I am receptive to you when you reach out to me. However, those who think they've got their act together, he says, okay, fine. I'll let you stand condemned in your own self-righteousness. Jesus entered into this mistreatment of the cross in order to accomplish a purpose, which is to provide deliverance for criminals. Jesus doesn't save the innocent. Jesus saves the guilty, which is bizarre. We're talking about those podcasts. We get really upset when people end up in jail and they're innocent. And, and we get really excited when the innocent are finally freed. Jesus gets really excited when the guilty are finally freed. He does everything backwards 
to what we would do. Jesus doesn't save the innocent. He saves the guilty. Let's back it up a little bit. Luke 23, 25. Now, some of you were getting, really getting excited. We're almost to the end of chapter 23. Yeah, we're almost done. I'm going to go have a Christmas ham, maybe some chocolate. And now I'm backing it up and going back to the beginning. You're just going to get over it. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 18. Back to the trial. All the Jews, along with the religious leaders in front of Pilate, they all cried out together, away with this man. Of course, they're referring to Jesus. Release to us Barabbas. Oh, you didn't do it right. Come on. Release to us Barabbas. Boo. Okay, now, okay. Now we're actively reading. Okay, good job. A man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. See, nobody's doing a, a podcast on Barabbas. Nobody's doing a podcast where you listen to the, the miscarriage of judges, ju justice where Barabbas ended up in jail. When Barabbas ended up in jail, they said, we knew that guy would end up on a cross. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. What did Pilate want to do? He wanted to release Jesus. I don't want to say, I don't want to be too disrespectful, but what this tells us about Pilate, this is a freebie. Pilate's a pansy. Moving on. <laughs> they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed over Pilate, the lily-livered governor. That part's not in your Bible. I'm adding that in as a commentary. Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Verse 25, listen. This serves as a picture of how Jesus likes to work. This is how Jesus rolls. This is his thing. If you ask Jesus, what do you like to do on the weekend? It's verse 25. Here it is. They released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This great exchange. Jesus shows compassion on who? Barabbas. Now, we all read the story, and Barabbas is the bad guy. He's supposed to be, but we're supposed to read this and wait, say, wait a minute. I think I'm Barabbas. I think I was supposed to pay the penalty for the things I've done wrong. But Jesus, out of his compassion, and because this is how he likes to do things, it's not because he was forced into it. It's not because he had no other options. It's not because they had run out of ideas in heaven. What else could we do? Well, I guess we're going to have to do crucifixion. No, this is how he chose to do it because this is how he likes to do it because he wants to show compassion on people like Barabbas. Barabbas comes out of jail and is set free. We don't know what happened to him. And Jesus is now put in Barabbas' place, destined for the place of the skull. Because Jesus has compassion on those who have ruined their relationship with God by their own foolishness. So Jesus is paraded out to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And as we mentioned earlier, he goes out there with two other criminals. Verse 32 of Luke 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So there were three crosses. Two people were not innocent. One person was. 
When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here we hear from Jesus' own mouth, his heart of compassion. Now, what did they know? Did they know they were crucifying some people? Yeah, they knew they were crucifying three people. They knew exactly what they were doing. This is something that the Romans were very, very good at. They were good at killing people. They were good at making sure they were dead. And they were good at making sure to do that nice and slow. That's how they did it. They were, this is something, you know, centurions wake up. What do we want to do today? It's Monday. How about a crucifixion? This is something they did. So it's not that they didn't know what they were doing in terms of the violence of the act and the fear it would cause in the community. What Jesus is saying, they don't know who they're doing this to. They don't recognize this is different. Every other criminal who has been crucified in some sense is a sinner. This is the one crucifixion where the person being nailed to the cross has absolutely no guilt whatsoever. They don't know what they're doing. And so his compassion reaches out to even those wielding the hammer and nails, saying, God, have mercy on their soul. He has compassion on the sinner even in these moments. I want to read about one of these criminals, one of my favorite occasions in all of Scripture, verse 40 of Luke 23. One of the criminals, of course, was railing on Jesus. We know from one of the other Gospels that both at a certain point were mocking Jesus, but at a certain point in their time on the cross, one of the criminals next to him had a change of heart. How is that possible? I don't know. Other than the Holy Spirit worked on his heart. Here's what he said. The other criminal rebuked the first who was mocking Jesus. Do you not fear God? You are under the same sentence of condemnation. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man, referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, the audacity of this prayer. Unbelievable. This prayer is the most offensive prayer in your Bible, I would suggest. This prayer is the most offensive prayer in your Bible. Here's what he says. Jesus, stop right there. This is unbelievable. So here's a guy hanging on a cross. Why is he on a cross? He just admitted it. Why is he on a cross? Because he's a criminal. He's unsurprised by the fact that he's on a cross. He tells his fellow criminal, Listen, we're supposed to be here. This is what we do. We're criminals. We got caught. What are you going to do? You get crucified. He's admitting to Jesus that he ought to be where he is because he's an idiot. That's what he's saying to Jesus. I'm on a cross. And, and, and where is Jesus in this moment? Also on a cross. So while this guy is suffering to a certain degree, certainly suffering, you, you have to admit, who is suffering more? Would you rather suffer what you have deserved or suffer what you do not deserve? Well, obviously, Jesus is suffering more because he shouldn't be there. He's done nothing to deserve it. At least the criminal has some solace to say, you know what, I, what are you going to do? You end up on crosses when you're a criminal. Jesus has no such solace. So this criminal, receiving what he ought to have received, turns to Jesus who is receiving what he ought not to have received and has the gall to say, hey, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? 
So here's this guy praying to Jesus. Now we might even say it this way. Might. We're about to, so here we go. <laughs> Jesus, hey, I see uh, what you're doing over here. I don't know if he's on his left. I'm imagining he's, Jesus is on his left. I recognize it could have been the other side. I see uh, you're paying for my sin there. Hey, could I go ahead and get a piece of the action with paradise? See, don't you find this? He shouldn't be praying this way. Shouldn't he be, shouldn't he be begging Jesus mercy? I'm so sorry. I've done all my bad things that put you on this cross. I mean, shouldn't he be at least look like he feels bad? Shouldn't he? How, how can he pray so boldly? Hey, Jesus, when you get to paradise today, I'll take a, I'll take a ticket into that place. I mean, doesn't that seem a little cavalier? I think it does. I think it's fantastic. Do you know what I love about this guy? He knows precisely what Jesus is up to. He knows exactly what Jesus is like. He knows somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has figured out what Jesus is up to. And he goes, I know his plan. He's looking for people who just simply want to take full advantage of what he's doing. And he turns to Jesus and he says, well, you remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Can't you see I'm a little busy over here? He doesn't say anything. What does he say to him? Look, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Think of the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. How many people have asked him questions and he has said precisely nothing? That's the story of the last 12 hours of his life. Pilate, Herod, chief priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, they're asking him countless questions. Who hit you? And what does he say almost the entire time? Nothing. And one criminal turns to Jesus and says, will you remember me in your kingdom? What does Jesus do? Oh man, you got it, buddy. You, you, you got it. You and I will be there. Well, I'm going to get there first, but we're going to be there very soon. You will be with me today. So bad news for the criminal. What's he discover from Jesus' mouth? You're not going to survive your cross. Because I'm going to see you in paradise today. Not next week, not next year. You're going to die today. But that's not a problem for you anymore. Because now you're with me, Jesus is saying. And look what I'm doing on this cross. I'm paying for your sin. So now you have hope. You have ruined your relationship with God through your own foolishness. I'm going to take care of it because I'm a compassionate savior towards sinner, sinners. I'm going to read these last verses, and I pray that in these moments as I read these, you will just hear what the Bible says. Verses 44 through 48 of Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
Jesus voluntarily gave up his life. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he raises from the dead. Anyone who trusts him have, has hope. That your sins are forgiven. Your foolishness, which broke your relationship with God, is now fixed in Christ. And now, like that criminal, in Christ who was raised from the dead, we have the anticipation of life with him forever. Have you ever found yourself impatient with God? I know it's a ridiculous question. Of course you have. You just don't want to admit it. Why won't God recognize what is really important in my life? Why won't God? I come to him in prayer and I'm coming to him with all these things. Why won't God get it through his thick skull what's really important in my life? And what the cross of Christ tells us is he does get what's really important in your life. Pride says things will be fine when God finally sees things my way. And humility helps us to see things are better when we see things God's way. Life is found when we find Christ by faith and recognize he can fix our relationship with God. That's when we will find hope as we discover our life in Christ and real life and real purpose is found in being like Christ from here until the day we join him forever. A couple of things about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection tells us that his plan is a little longer term than our plan. Jesus' resurrection, number one, his tomb was empty. Independent historical accounts, both in our scripture and out, say the tomb was empty. Everybody knows that. We just don't know what happened to the body. But what do we do know? Hundreds of people testified that they hung out with him after his crucifixion. Not only that, all of those who were closest to him gladly went to their deaths proclaiming his name. What does that tell us? His tomb was empty because he was alive and he spent time with people who saw him alive. And they recognized in this moment, Jesus' plan goes, goes beyond our memorial service. Jesus' resurrection tells us his plan for us goes beyond this life. If you want Jesus merely to have a better day today, you have a short-term view of what Jesus wants to do. Jesus wants you to give a life here that has purpose, living today like he did with compassion for those around us, knowing that our life never ends. Because he is raised, we live with him forever when we trust him. Finally, this, I want us to close by thinking about that criminal who turned to Jesus and said, remember me, Jesus. Just a couple of thoughts on this. Number one, it requires honesty and humility. Just think about your life for a minute. Hopefully it takes longer than a minute to think about your life, but we're just going to give you a minute. Think about your life for a minute. Is your life the way God wants it to be? That's just up to you. I'm going to let you decide. And maybe you say, yeah, it's exactly how God will want me to live. How can, what's one of the ways you can assess that? Well, number one, you could read your Bible and find out exactly how God wants you to live. But there's another way too. If you just, this way might be a little quicker. I call this, how do you sleep at night kind of question. So you ever had that when you lay down your head at night and you close your eyes and you're trying to sleep and maybe you can't and, and you're left alone with your thoughts. No, no fancy words to convince others you're okay. 
and you're left just alone with you and your thoughts, and, and this is where you just have to figure it out. This is just you and the Lord. Are you okay? Is everything fine with you and him? Yeah, as you're laying there without giving justification, impressing the people around, it's very easy to impress people around us, but you're left alone with your thoughts. Is your life the way you know God wants it? And if, if not, is your heart's desire that God would finally change and see that you're okay? See, that's, that's pride. What we want to do is allow God to work on us to where we become like that criminal on the cross next to him, where we finally say, you know what? In humility, I want God to change me. I want to stop trying to convince God to be the way I want him to be. Instead, I want him to change my heart. And the great thing about our Savior, because he's so compassionate, is when we yield to him in humility and say, Jesus, I need you to change me. What's his answer? You got it. What we call that is faith. We trust that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to change our heart, to give us life. We trust that his resurrection provides us the means so that when we die, we live forever with him. My hope would be for us today is that if in this moment you say, I don't think things with God and I are okay, that you would recognize that Jesus came for someone just like you. And all he's saying, well, reach out to me. And recognize what I did on the cross was for you, and my resurrection was for you. The compassion of Jesus, he disregarded the rights of his innocence and was treated like a criminal for criminals like us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you, God, for your son, Jesus, who, being God, did not consider equality with God something to be gripped tightly to, but instead, he humbled himself, and he, and he took on the form of servant, humbling himself, not even being like a man and a servant, but even, even dying, and, and more than that, not, not just dying, but, but dying on a cross, but we know from your word, he didn't stay dead, he, he was raised, and he is highly exalted, in fact, he is highly exalted. His name is above every other name that at, at a certain point, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So God, when we think about the compassion of our Savior, I would pray in this moment that your heart would change our hearts, that your spirit would do a work in us. There are people here this morning, God, who do not have hope in you because they have not been willing to admit they need a relationship with you restored. And I pray in this moment, during this time, that you would open their eyes just like you opened the eyes of that criminal on the cross. That they would even pray a prayer in their heart just like that criminal did. did. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that faith, Lord, brings salvation and forgiveness of sins. But God, many of us here have been believers, some for a long time and some for a short time. And the reality is our compassion has waned. Over the years, our compassion for those who are broken and hurt and struggling has lessened. 
And we see and are reminded here today of the compassion of our Savior. And our prayer for us would be, God, that you would renew in us a deep compassion for others around us. Not just for people who are in situations we relate to, God, but for people who are in situations by their own choices that are difficult. That like our Savior, our heart would break for them. And we would seek to be like Jesus to them. Jesus, we pray that this Easter we would once again have hope in you and you alone. And God, we can't wait till you return. But if, if you're going to wait a little longer, like those women you prayed for, we pray that you would give us strength to endure whatever may come, that you may be glorified in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.